what an incredible truth. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Man, that just gives me so much relief. <laughs> it's not me, it's Christ in me. We are returning this morning to our study in the book of Luke. So if you have your study Bibles, if you will, turn um, there to the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in front of you in the, in the seat in front of you. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. I think the, I think the Bibles we have are in ESV. Um, very close um, together. We use those for study uh, Bibles. But we are returning to Luke. And again, just a reminder for Luke, um, his purpose is to give us certainty. Certainty concerning the things that have been taught, the truth of God's Word. And he says that in his opening verses in Luke Chapter 1. Our faith is grounded in the truth based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And that is what we have in God's Word. And so we turn in God's Word as we come each Sunday morning and other times that we meet throughout the week to study God's Word, to understand God's revelation of Himself through His Word, through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, every time I know I get up and speak, I remind you of this because I need to be reminded of this. What, what, Paul, what, Paul, what Paul says in Second in Second Timothy. Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Not a good works that gives us merit before God, but a good works that is produced for the glory of God. Matt reminded us of this as he walked us through um, the, the whole book of Ephesians um, last Sunday. For by grace, Paul says in Ephesians, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So therefore, these good works are a product of God's saving grace. And it produces a walk of obedience for his glory, for the glory of God. And so as we come together and we look at God's word, we're looking at the full revelation of God in his word. And I, I don't know, you know, if, if you've been to our website or if you've looked at our doctrinal statement um, anytime recently, um, but the very first paragraph listed in that doctrinal statement is for the, um, the Holy Scriptures the inspiration of God's word. And I toyed with even reading that there's 10 statements there. There's 10, just 10 sentences right there in that statement. I want to encourage you if, you, haven't, if you, if you haven't seen our doctrinal statement, we can get you a copy. If you want to go, just go to our website at cbckennesaw.com. Um, I think it's under the, the there's other, there, oh no, it's about. So it's about us, about, you can click on about, and then you can click on the full doctrinal statement. And it's there. And this is what it says. And this, this is, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I guess I'm going to go ahead and read it because it's important. It's important to our study today because we're going to talk about these two disciples who were walking with Christ and road to Emmaus and they didn't understand the scriptures. So we need to understand that scripture, God has revealed everything that he, that he needs to reveal to us through his scripture. And here's what our doctoral statement says. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired, that is God breathed and is the record of God's revelation of himself to man. Thus, the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, that is inspired equally in all parts, plenary word of God. The word of God is verbally inspired in every word. That's what we mean by verbally, every word. Absolutely inherent in the original documents, infallible and God-breathed. God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part. The single true interpretation of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the contextual, literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation, taking account of its literary forms and devices. This interpretation can 
only be found in dependence upon the enlightenment given by the Holy Spirit. So that's what we depend upon. The truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. Being infallible, the Bible is sufficient to make the believer complete, equipped for all things related to life and goodness. The Scripture will remain unchanged in its authority and efficacy forever. Amen? That's what we believe. And if you go there and look at that, there's also each, each sentence is, is subnoted or subtitled or sub, footnoted, I'm sorry, footnoted with passages. There's 16 passages there. So if you're thinking, you know, I wonder it would be an exercise to do in my personal study this week. Go look at our doctrinal statement. Look and read that and look at each of those. And that could be an interesting part of your study. We encourage our high school students in their, in their curriculum to do that as well here um, at Community Bible Church. So we open up God's Word this morning. Our dependence is upon the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds so, we might un- so that we might understand and believe the things that God has communicated to us through His word, written Word. So let's, so let's do that. Let's go, to the, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's ask the Lord to enlighten our hearts and our minds so we might understand His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we look at Your Word, we ask that through the power of Your Spirit, You would illumine our hearts, and our minds, so we might know you, the author, and what you have intended to communicate it to us. And then let us walk in obedience to that truth and share that truth in the lost and dying world in which we live. And produce within us a joyful heart of thanksgiving to the praise and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Our passage this morning continues with Luke's description of the events of that first day of the week on resurrection, on the resurrection morning. Luke and, the, and all of the gospel writers provide accounts for those who are eyewitnesses to the person of Jesus Christ and his resurrection in bodily form. Today we return to Luke chapter 24 and Luke's description of the resurrection of Christ. Three weeks, three weeks ago, Levi... Uh, Morris preached, and he, and he preached from verses 1 through 12. And so it's been a few weeks. And so I just, I want before to, we, before we read our scripture, before we, we're going to pick up, I, I'll probably read verse 1, but our main passage starts in verse 13. I want to just remind you, to get you kind of in the mood for what's going on here in this first resurrection morning. Now, Jump forward, jump forward to April 9 of this year. That will be Easter Sunday. And we'll all come in here and we're going to say to each other, He is risen. And you will say, He is risen indeed. But that was not how it went that first, that early Easter morning. We get to have that greeting because we have the preponderance of evidence. That evidence was building through those early morning hours. And so rightly so, right? right their attitude about, uh, their, their, the, some of the questions they had in their attitude is, is understandable because every truth claim must be substantiated by a preponderance of evidence, both physical evidence and, and, and a multitude of eyewitnesses. So as we read through this text, take a note of some of the emotions that are here. Um, perplexed. And Levi covered and covered several of these. Perplexed, the women, the women perplexed. Where is the body of Christ? Frightened, the women are frightened. They have an encounter with two angels who say, hey, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. Unbelief. This is, this is the apostles' response to the women's report of what had happened, what they had found in the empty tomb. Unbelief. And then amazement, marveling. Peter and John, they run to the grave, and they, they marvel at what they see, but they're not yet convinced. And then sadness, grief. That's the, that's the mood and the attitude of, our, of the two disciples we're going to encounter here on the road to Emmaus. You know, if you're an unbeliever, or if you're sharing with an unbeliever, know this, that the Christian faith is not a blind faith. No one is being asked to believe something that is not based on facts, historical facts. The ultimate question for everyone who encounters the person of Christ 
this. How do you respond to the evidence provided by the presence of the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts of those who came face to face with the person of Jesus Christ? You know, as with any historical claim, it must be substantiated by historical evidence and eyewitness evidence. Here's, a, here's an example we use for the kids when we're, when we're teaching the kids. Um, let me pick out somebody. Bravery. Did you have breakfast this morning? No. Who had breakfast this morning? Uh, Baptist, do you have breakfast this morning? Can you prove it? Yeah. Think about that. Think about it for a moment. Could, he, could you prove, if you had breakfast this morning, how would you prove it? Well, one of the easiest ways... Your dog ate up all the crumbs, okay? But I don't know that that proves it. Well, okay, yes, that, okay, I'm going to go with that. So we're going we're gonna to take the dog to Dr. Wolf. We're going to have his stomach pumped. And we're going to see if the content, and then we're going to take Baptist to the urgent care and have his stomach pumped. And we're going to compare the contents of both of those stomachs and see if they match up. Now that might, would that, would that help? Would that that would be physical evidence, right? What's an easier way? Bravery. Were, uh, um, uh, um, Brayson, were you there when Baptist had breakfast? No. Bravery, were you there? <laughs> Who was? Baptist, was anybody there when you had breakfast? Who was? Brevity and who? And Briley. Two eyewitnesses. Now that, now that would be the quickest way that, would that be better than having your stomach pumped? Yeah, probably. Probably. Well, so far in our text this morning, the description of the two eyewitnesses, um, the, um, the description of two eyewitnesses, who we have the description of two eyewitnesses who come face to face with the person of Jesus Christ. Um, here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. I'm just kind of bringing you back in because it's been several weeks since we've been in this passage of the resurrection. An angel has rolled away the stone. And, and this Matthew gives us a, an account of this in Matthew 28. Here's what you need to know. Jesus is already resurrected. Je, the, 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 why did the angels roll away the stone? To access so, people, so it could be seen that he is not there. That Christ is not there. So the stone's been rolled away. And, and, and this is before sunrise, Matthew tells us. Number two, Mary Magdalene and a number of other women arrive at the tomb early in the morning before daylight, and they find the tomb empty. They find the tomb empty. All of the, all of, all of the um, gospel writers give us this account. Now, they're there. Mary Magdalene then runs to tell Peter and John. She runs to tell Peter and John. And what does she say? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. But that was her conclusion. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've taken him. The other women who, are, who remain at the tomb, as Mary Magdalene has gone to tell Peter and John, they see two angels who tell them about the resurrection of Christ. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Now, the evidence is building, right? The evidence is building. So, Mary Magdalene is run to tell Peter and John. Peter and John come racing back to the tomb. And John gives us more of this account in his account. Um, and so, John chapter 20, great, great passage um, to be looking at um, this week as you're, as you're going through this. They run to the tomb, um, and they find the tomb empty just as Mary Magdalene had reported. And here's what John says in John chapter 20. And I think the way these verses line up is just, it's, it's, it, it, was, it was like amazing when I, I was like reading this. I'm going, wow, this, that's amazing. Then the other disciple, John's describing himself here um, in, John, in John 20. I know we're in Luke 24 and we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm just trying to kind of build us a context here. So um, John says, then the other disciple, he's describing himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. Now, what did he believe? I think he believed Mary's report that the tomb was empty. That's what he believed, because the very next sentence in John's account in 20 is this, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must 
He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples, Peter and John, went back home. They went back home. They didn't go race to tell everybody else. They weren't yet convinced. But the evidence is building. Are you with me? So Peter and John leave the empty tomb. And Mary Magdalene stays. And she encounters two angels who ask her why she is weeping. And she replies, they've taken away my Lord. This is still the conclusion. Because one thing hasn't happened yet. One thing hasn't happened yet. It's the eyewitnesses. That hasn't happened yet in in terms of meeting Jesus face to face. She replied, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this to the two angels, she turned to see a man who she believes is the gardener, believing that he would know where the body is. And then that man calls her by name. And she realizes it's Jesus. What an amazing thing. That's the first encounter of the risen Lord face to face is with Mary Magdalene. What what an amazing truth of God's love. If you knew Mary's life, you think that's the first person, the very first person that sees him resurrected. And so Mary goes to the disciples and she says, I've seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And the other women who were with her, they are going to tell the disciples and they meet Jesus on the way and they meet Jesus. And they see Jesus face to face. So as as this morning progresses, we're resurrection morning, right? I hope I'm just getting you in to understand this. As, as, As we're at this point in the morning, Only the women have seen Jesus face to face. As far as the disciples are are concerned, the report of the women seems to them as an idle tale. An idle tale. And Luke tells us that they did not believe the women's report. As we look at our primary text, which describes the account of two disciples who meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus, let me let me give you my main point. Now I had some I had some um, handouts on the back, um, but we only had about twenty of them. I see they're gone. Good, you're getting those. And. There's no blanks there. Actually, it helps me as I'm just kind of falling through this to make sure I'm staying on the same, um, kind of staying with you in this. In, in, in this. But our main point is, is this. The Christian life requires an active engagement of the mind and the heart. Both the mind and the heart. Knowledge and trust. And we're going to see this as we, re- and I'm going to read this passage now. As we see this, we're going to see from these two disciples who are very sad as they're walking in the road, when we fail to understand the person of God, His character, His purpose, and His promises, as revealed in Scripture, and when we fail to trust or believe in the truth of God's Word, then we're going to be disappointed. We are going to be disappointed. God has revealed Himself through His written Word. And the more we come to understand the person and character of God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, the more we come to trust him. And that is so important in our lives because God is a promise keeper. Now, I'm going to give you just two warnings, and I'm not going to spend any time on these, but listen to me on this, will you? To engage the mind only and not the heart produces a dead faith. All right? If we just engage the mind only and not the heart, it produces a faith. To have a knowledge of God and not a heart that is changed by God's word is a faith without works, James says in James chapter 2. I'll give you the second warning. To engage the heart only. Now, to engage the heart only, but not the mind, but not the mind, produces a blind faith. A blind faith. A heart that believes anything and is carried away by every wind of doctrine. No foundation in truth. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 4. And so as we come and we preach and we teach God's word, we do that with the intent of a change in our hearts. And I hope that as we walk through um, this passage this morning, um, that will happen for you. All right, so now, turn. Uh, hopefully you're turned 
um, to Luke chapter 24. Again, our primary, our, um, and, and this is part one. Brian's going to pick up next week with part two of the road to Emmaus. So you got to come hear the rest of the story next week. But let's pick up in verse one. But the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. These are the women taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were perplexed, perplexed, okay, there's one of the emotions, while they perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must, underline that, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the, and, and the other women with him who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, he went home, marveling at what had happened. That's early, early morning. Now we're still in the early morning hours. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and, and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things has happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Those last two verses I read, it's kind of going to be that transition that Brian's going to pick up with next week. Um, but what I want you, where our focus is going to be is on verse 17, verse 21, and verse 25. I'm going to kind of connect those, those verses in this narrative of what's happening. Because in verses 17, 21, and 25, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that, there, that these disciples, there's a sadness. There's a disappointment that results from a misplaced hope brought on by a misunderstanding of God's word and a heart that's slow believe. That's what Jesus said. Oh, foolish ones. They misunderstood. He says, you're slow to believe. And so they had a misplaced hope. So I want to kind of connect those, um, those verses um, with you. Um, the, the, the weekly Sabbath is now over, okay? And so in the morning hours of, of this day, um, these two disciples are now able to travel any kind of distance. So they're, head, so they're heading home back to Emmaus. Their discussion is about all the things that have taken place over the past several days. And undoubtedly, they're trying to put together all the pieces of that puzzle. And then this, this traveler, fellow traveler, kind of eavesdrops, joins them and eavesdrops on their conversations. 
And this traveler we know from our text is Jesus, but their eyes have been kept from recognizing him. Um, but, but here, he asked them, he says, what, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And, they, and so they stop. And it says, and in the ESV, he uses the word, and they're sad. Other versions, other, versions, other translations of the Bible use the word um, discouraged or downcast. Um, and I think as we, then later as we, as we see, we see really it's, their hopes are dashed. dashed hopes. Have, you, have you ever been there? Have you ever had dashed hopes? Now, I was thinking about a lot of different things, but the one that just, the newest one, the freshest one in my mind, just as a kind of an interesting example, was Carly and Riley, their honeymoon adventure. Um, how, I mean, I don't know how many of you know, um, you know, so Carly, our youngest, and Riley and Carly were married in 2020, so COVID's still coming on, right? So we have this wedding, this beautiful wedding on Saturday. Every, I mean, everybody comes. I didn't think, any, I didn't think you know, we'd have to feed two, 20 people. We fed 150 people. Um, it was great. It was hot. If you were there, you see, it was hot. It was great. But it was a wonderful wedding. And so mountaintop experience, right? You know, the honeymoon's coming. They're going to go to the Dominican Republic. Riley's made all these arrangements. It's it, this all-inclusive resort. It's going to be awesome. They get on the plane. They travel there. No hiccups. They get their luggage. They get in the car, the transport, whatever it takes them to this resort. And when they pull up to the resort, there's an armed guard there standing at, at a locked gate. The place is closed. So talk about going from like this mountaintop experience. If you're Riley and you're thinking, Carly's probably, I, I, Carly was just in tears, right? I think that's what I understood. She's in tears. And you're a new husband and your wife's in tears. And you're, look, you're, you're not in the United States of America. And you're looking at an armed guard in front of the resort you thought you would be spending your honeymoon at. I'll let them tell you the rest of the story. But that's what it means. That's what it's like when you go from like a mountaintop emotional experience and down kind of the pits of despair, thinking, oh, what, what could be worse? You know, remember, it's only been only a few days ago, and all of Jerusalem was filled with the expectation and the excitement of Jesus of Nazareth as he makes his triumphal entry. Finally, the long-awaited Messiah has come to free Israel from Roman oppression and reestablish the throne of David. For a Hebrew, what could possibly be more exciting, right? But in just a matter of days, everything is turned upside down. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is tried in both religious and civil courts. And Jesus is condemned to death and crucified on the cross. And so one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? there in these days and he says to them what things and they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth the man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified remember the nation of Israel has not heard from God for 400 years the last time they heard from a prophet of God was 400 years ago. I mean, think about that. The United States isn't even 300 years old, right? If, you're, if, if, if four generations make up about 100 years, that would be like 16 generations ago. That's how long it's been since they've heard there has been any word from God. So what they have is the same written word that we have. They have the Old Testament. What we have is the Old Testament. That's what they have. And that's what they had. They, they knew of Elijah. They knew of Elisha, um, of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, the great prophets. They had read about those. And those prophets, God used to proclaim his written word to the people. And, and many times they were accompanied by signs and miracles. I mean, think of Elijah, Elisha. Um, there, were, there, was a, there were resurrections, right? And there were, there were the, not, not the multiplication of bread, but the multiplication of oil for the widow. But all the different signs that they saw from these prophets. And Jesus was doing that and more. And so Jesus, in, in, in Luke 9, we, if we go back and look, remember in Luke 9, Jesus says, well, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ of God, the Messiah. And he was mighty in word, too. Um, 
Luke 4 tells us that they were astounded as he was teaching in the synagogue. Astounded by his teaching. And his word possessed authority. So the works, the words and works of Jesus went far beyond anything they had ever heard or read about in Scripture. And even John, John says in his final chapter in John uh, 21, he says, Now there were many, also many things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amazing. Surely this man was the Christ, the promised Messiah. But, Luke tells us in verse 21, that they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The Greek word here used to translate redeem just simply means to set free, to liberate, to deliver, to to release or set free. With the implied analogy of the process of freeing a slave. That's what redeem means. But what was the redemption that they were looking for? They were looking for a Messiah to free them from Roman oppression and restore peace and unity to the throne of David. But why? Why was Israel under Roman oppression? Why were they there? Well, if you remember the Mosaic Covenant, this is a covenant God makes with Moses. And he promises, God promises prosperity if Israel will walk in obedience and worship God. In that same covenant, God promises oppression and destruction if she's disobedient and follows false gods. Listen to the dialogue between um, God and Moses in Deuteronomy 31. As God is, is, Moses is, the people are about to enter into the promised land. After 40 years of wandering, right? Why were they wandering? Why was that generation that preceded this generation that's about to? Because of sin, because of disobedience. They were wondering, and now this next generation is about to go in. And this is, and, and, and this is, what, the, this is what God tells Mo, Moses in, in Deuteronomy 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. And when this, then this people will rise, and they will whore, they will prostitute themselves, they will whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And so the history of Israel is a history of disobedience, a wandering people, constantly wandering from the God who has chosen them to display His glory and His holiness to the nations around them. But yet, God always intercepts that disobedience with His grace and mercy. And that's true in our lives today. Amen? I mean, isn't that incredible to think about that? But we see that in the cycle of the judges, and that cycle they go through of, of, of disobeying God, being punished for that, right? And then crying out to God to help him. He sends a prophet. And, and then they return, they're restored, and then they sin again. And that cycle just goes on and on in, in, in the judges. It goes on throughout the United Kingdom under Saul and um, David and Solomon. And then the divided kingdom, the same thing. And, and so here they, here they find themselves. In fact, the disobedience of Israel, um, the Assyrians come and take away the northern kingdom and they are scattered forever, never to be seen again. The southern kingdom, um, we identified as Judah, they're taken into captivity by Babylon. Again, because of their sin. Babylon is is followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is followed by the Roman Empire. Now Israel finds herself under a Roman rule. Why? Because of her sin. Israel's problem was not Rome. They thought Rome was their problem. Israel's problem was her sin. And really there's application for us just in that for us today as well. You know, how many times do we forget that the problems and the conflicts that we face each day are because of brokenness? And that brokenness is because of sin. It could be our personal sin. All sin has consequences. 
It could be because of the sin of someone near us, around us, right? We're relational beings. There's no such thing as private sin. When you sin, people around you are going to suffer because of the consequences that come from that. It can also just be the general brokenness that we have in this world because we're in a fallen world going all the way back to Adam when he sinned. He thrust the whole, the whole earth into brokenness. And so we experience all of the consequences of sin. Remember, there can be, and this is what these disciples missed, there can be no kingdom, there's no glory without the cross. Israel wanted a Messiah. They wanted a ruling king, but not a suffering servant king. That's not what they wanted. They just wanted to be freed from Rome. And so the disciples, who are most disappointed because of a misplaced hope. You know, the gospel that we proclaim today the gospel that we proclaim is not Jesus can fix your problems and make things better. There's a temptation to want to do that when you meet people because they're broken. And you want to help them. You want to say, Jesus can fix your problems and make things all better. But that's not the problem. The problem is sin problem. And that's what the gospel is. That's the gospel we proclaim. The health and wealth of prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It's, a, it, it's just like these disciples. Well, we had hoped, we had just hoped that he would redeem us. Redeem us from what? Redeem us from Rome. Redeem us from those, the oppression. The gospel that we proclaim is that Jesus alone is qualified to satisfy the just and holy demands of God. Only his substitutionary death on the cross is for the sin problem to be resolved. Fully and completely, it's finished, Jesus said. And it's the resurrection of Christ that validates God's acceptance of Christ as the atoning work for our sins. And he's coming back, and he's coming back to rule and reign. But we had to have the cross before we could have that return in glory. Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? Every person that Jesus healed during his ministry got sick and died. You ever think about that? How about Lazarus? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Do you know what happened to Lazarus? After that? Eventually, he got sick and died. The miracles that Jesus performed were not to fix the physical problems of, of our brokenness. The miracles give testimony to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And by his sinless life, he can satisfy the requirements of the law by his death on the cross. Jesus did not come to redeem Israel from Rome. He came to redeem mankind from his sin. You know, this misplaced hope was based on the misunderstanding. They didn't have the big picture. Again, and we'll see this again in 25, they didn't understand. They didn't have the big picture. God's plan was to use Israel as an instrument to bring about redemption to men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You know, Roger, you know Roger, one of Roger Seelock's favorite expressions is, we are instruments in the hand of a redeemer. And so Israel was an instrument in the hands of God, our redeemer. It was through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that God would bring the Messiah the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God. This is what John the Baptist got it. John the Baptist understood it. What did he say when he saw Jesus? He did not say, behold, the one who rescues us from Rome. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John got it. John got it. The Abraham covenant God told Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12. In Genesis 22, and we'll, I'm going to go to this in just a minute, but in the, that, that when God tests Abraham in his faith and he takes Isaac to offer him on Mount Moriah, God says um, to, uh, to Abraham, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
because you have obeyed my voice. Israel had lost sight of God's purpose in forming them as a nation. God's plan is to redeem man from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Israel was simply an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. Israel's not the main point, the center point of God's purpose. Israel's simply an instrument of God in bringing glory to himself. And you know, there's application for us today. Well, certainly there's application for me, because I need to be reminded of this every day. It's God's plan and God's purpose, and all that I experience in life, it's not about me. It's about Him. It's about God. God is in the process of bringing glory to Himself as He redeems mankind and brings men from every tribe, tongue, and nation to Himself. And so we send off Pat and Adam to Romania to participate in the gospel proclamation around the world. You know, it, Again, it's not about me. It's not about my family. I lose sight of this all the time. It's not even about CBC Community Bible Church. We are all simply instruments in the hand of a, of a Redeemer. And when we forget that, when we forget that we're simply instruments in the hand of a Redeemer, we'll be disappointed because our focus is in the wrong place. Because when we fail to understand the person of God, His character, His purpose, and His promises as revealed in Scripture, then we'll fail to trust the truth of God's Word and we'll ultimately be disappointed because of a misplaced hope. These two disciples go on to describe some of the events that occurred early that morning. Yes, and, and besides all this, they, they, they tell um, this traveler who's with them, it's now the third day since this, these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us they, that they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And notice Jesus' response down in verse 25. And he says to them, O foolish ones, and, number two, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You know, in, the, in his general rebuke, Christ links their disappointment in both the heart and the mind. It's a heart problem and a mind problem. First, he addresses the mind, oh, foolish ones. You know, had they been students, had they been students of God's word, they would have known that the Messiah was identified by both suffering and glory. And I think Levi made this, made this point very well um, when he preached on those first 12 verses. They should have known that, that the and, and in fact, Levi gave us a list of um, passages re relating back to the suffering servant. They should have known that that, that that was necessary. And the most vivid illustration that I can think of is I'm just, just thinking of illustrations of the necessity of the cross. Now, follow me here. Follow me, Lucia, here. The most vivid illustration I think of, of the necessity of the cross and the necessity of the resurrection is a story of Abraham and Isaac at Mount Moriah. Do y'all you remember that story? Know that story? If you don't, you got to read it. What a great story, Genesis chapter 22. God made, has made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. God promised that he would give Abraham and Sarah a son. But time passes. Too much time passes. Sarah's getting old, way too old to bear a son. So Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. Sarah suggested that Abraham have a son through his handmaiden, or through their handmaiden, Hagar. Well, sin has consequences, doesn't it? And those two brothers are still fighting to this day. Yet Sarah does bear a son. God keeps his promise, and she bears a son, Isaac, at the age of 90. That's a miracle. That was a miracle. It would be a miracle day. It was a miracle then. That's a miracle. And God confirms that through Isaac, that God will make a great nation through Isaac. One day God tests Abraham's faith. And he tells Abraham, take your only son. And then when you read the passage, it's only son, right? And offer him as a sacrifice. Now Abraham knew that sacrifice, the shedding of blood, was necessary to atone for sin. And since God sacrificed the first animal to clothe Adam and Eve in the sin in the garden, 
Sacrifice is a constant reminder. This is the purpose of the sacrifice when you read through the Old Testament. A constant reminder of the consequence of sin. For God to ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, that was the ultimate test of his trust in God. But wait a minute. Think through this with me. If Abraham obeys God, and he intends to, how will God keep his promise to make a great nation from the line of Isaac? How's he going to do that? Isaac will be dead. How's he going to do that? One way. Only one way, right? There had to be a resurrection. And the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so, with a firm belief in the resurrection, Abraham is willing to offer his son Isaac. And you know the rest of the story. As Abraham raises that knife to take the life of his son, his only son, the promised son, an angel stops Abraham, and God provides a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket, that Abraham offers on that altar. The story is one of the most well-known stories. It would have been memorized by Hebrew children throughout the history of Israel. The penalty of sin is death. This declaration was made by God to Adam in the garden. The sacrifice of an unblemished lamb had to be made. The nation of Israel was reminded of this every year during the Passover. But if the Messiah, this is now, now follow me with it, because this is, this is where they should, maybe should have connected this. If the Messiah is the unblemished Lamb of God, which is what John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, how would he rule and reign in glory if he dies? Same dilemma. Same dilemma. There had to be a resurrection. Remember when I described the order, the early events in that morning, the first resurrection Sunday? When John says that he saw and he believed, and in, the, in, in that very verse, he says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so Jesus gently rebukes these two disciples for being foolish and not understanding with their mind the necessity of the cross and the necessity of the resurrection. Had these two disciples understood the scripture, they would have known that a substitutionary death of the Messiah would have to take place first. And then the resurrection. So the Messiah would reign and rule in glory. Secondly, this. Not only does, this, not only does he gently rebuke them and say, oh foolish ones, he says, and slow of heart to believe. The heart and the mind are inseparably inseparably inseparably, I can't say the word, linked. The highest form of worship comes from a heart that is fully informed by the Word of God. The more we come to understand the person of God as He's revealed Himself in His Word, the more we are compelled to praise God and bring Him glory, honor Him in our worship. J.I. Packer says this, and I quote, listen to this. Man was made to know God with his mind, to desire it once he has come to know it with his affections, and to cleave to it once he has felt its attraction with his will. God accordingly moves us, not by direct action on, on the affections or will, but by addressing our mind with his word, and so bringing to bear on us the full force of truth, unquote. God's Word is the fuel that feeds our affections. God's Word is the anchor that holds our affections steadfast in His truth. And God's Word is the guardrails that guides and protects our affections from false hope and error. Think about the songs that we sing here on Sunday morning. And I'll tell you this, we don't just sing any songs. We have, we have, we have some guys that... Look at the words of every song that we sing. They're rich in theological truth. And it's the truth that feeds the flame of a heart. Right? 
when we sing. You know, the teachers, the teachers, the Pharisees, the teachers at the time of Israel, the time of these two disciples, they had, they had memorized the Scripture, but they didn't understand it. They didn't see God's holiness, and they didn't see their depravity. They didn't see the sin and the need for redemption from sin. Hence, they weren't looking for a Messiah to rescue them from their sin. They were just looking for a Messiah to rescue them from them. And so they trusted in themselves, and their hearts were misinformed, and their hearts were far from that of God. Here's the application. The application for today. But, but we had hoped. Where is our hope? You know, Jesus did not come to save us from our economic woes and our financial hardships, because that's not our greatest problem. He did not come to save us from our physical sickness and death. That's not our biggest problem. He didn't come to save us from our political disagreements. Our politicians and our politics are not our problem. Jesus did not come to save us from you fill in the blank. Because that is not our problem. Jesus came to redeem us from the slavery to sin. Because that was our deepest need. Only in this redemption can men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation Return to the purpose for which God has created us, proclaiming the glory of God. We need, to be, we need to be students of God's Word. And we need to come to know Him more. And as we come to know Him more, we will learn to trust Him more. And we will respond with thanksgiving and praise. The psalmist says this, and I close with this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his delight, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates. The mind is engaged day and night. And then having the heart and the mind connected, what is the product of that? And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Let's pray.